This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. Before we jump into the episode today, I wanted to make you aware of a new beer that's on our website. It's called First Ride, and it's a tribute to folks that are getting out early, whether it's on the trail, on the road, or on the water, or on the, on the snow. You know, that's what we're talking about today. Wherever it is, for the folks that are getting out and finishing the day strong, this is something to celebrate that perfect day outside with. Uh, it's an American porter with a blend of medium and dark coffee roast, so it's a darker beer. Uh, and my, I'll, I'll just say this, my dad's a huge fan of our dark beers, and he says that this is his favorite. So there's still some available on our website, athleticbrewing.com. Definitely encourage you to check it out. Free shipping on two or more six-packs. And for any of our flagship beers, our Upside Dawn Golden Ale, our Run Wild IPA, or our Hazy IPA Free Wave, I would encourage you to try to find those on-store shelves near you. Go to our website. There's a store finder. Type in where you live or where you're at, and it'll be able to show anywhere near you that uh, that carries us on-store shelves. So just trying to keep you uh, keep you aware of all the options with how you can get some athletic brewing. And so moving on to today's episode, if you don't know, Athletic Brewing has a program called Two for the Trails, where 2% of all our sales are donated to park and trail cleanups and maintenance and outdoor access. There's a lot of different types of projects under that umbrella, but we try to stick to trail-based and outdoor-based organizations. And uh, Colorado Avalanche Information Center is one of the recipients uh, of our Two for the Trail funding for the winter 2020-2021. And by the way, this year we're doing a grant with Two for the Trail. So if you know of any organizations or any projects that could use some funding, we're giving away half a million dollars in June. Uh, just have go to our website, look up Two for the Trails. It's on the, the Explore tab at athleticbrewing.com and have them apply because we're literally giving that money away and we're looking for great projects to fund. So one of our recipients last year is Colorado Outdoor Information Center, actually friends of Colorado Outdoor Information Center. Uh, and the director of CAIC is Ethan Green. And we're talking to him today about backcountry safety, about how, how they forecast avalanches, how things have changed, uh, his experience of what he's been doing. He's, he, he's been the director for 16 years now. I mean, he's been there a while and seen a lot of different things happen. Um, so we're, we're just learning from him, learning from his experience, and also share some tips and tricks on how you can stay safe in the backcountry because if you don't know it's been a pretty devastating season in the backcountry something that really blew my mind about what he said and and I've heard before is that there are accidents with avalanches and there are avalanches every single month of the year there's not a single month of the year that there are not avalanches and avalanche accidents so but it's definitely a myth that they ever get the ability to just totally check out and that it's not an issue anymore. So uh, thank you, Ethan, for what you do. And thank you for everyone at CAIC and friends of CAIC for what you do. It's a pleasure to work with you. And, uh, and without further ado, here's the interview. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So, so where are you coming from today? Where's home? I live in Leadville, Colorado. So um, in the kind of in the middle of the state, uh, in the Central Mountains, 
I got the Sawat range on the west side of me and the Mosquito range on the east. And uh, the town is right around, well, it's a 10,150 10, feet. So my house is right around 10-1. If I'm not mistaken, the highest town, incorporated town in the U.S., yeah, that's right. Highest incorporated town. Um, and it was founded kind of in the late 1800s as a mining town, still still a pretty big mining town, but also uh, amazing recreation all around this place. Oh, man. Do, do you feel like that's a good place for you to be with, with your role at CAIC? Is it like I'm, I'm, I'm way up here on the mountaintop able to able to monitor all these avalanches? I I do. Um, it is a it's a great place for me to be, but uh, unfortunately for a little different reason. In that, the the Avalanche Center, the CAIC, is uh, you know we cover the whole state of Colorado, so we're spread out. We have 23 people, you know, covering about 30,000 square miles of terrain. Um, and the reason that Leadville is a good place for me is because I can relatively easily, as easily as you can travel through Colorado, um, get to where other people are working and, and help them. And I can also get down to Denver where, uh, you know, the epicenter of the state government is and interact with uh, with those folks because we are a government agency, part of the Department of Natural Resources here in Colorado. So it's just a really good central location. And then, of course, it has the added bonus of being up in the mountains and uh, close to the snow, which is where I'd like to be if I had a choice. After all these years, you still you still love the snow. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, tell us about growing up there because you you grew up in Boulder, right? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, um, on the Front Range, and uh, yeah, great upbringing. My my family was very into um, backcountry recreation, recreating in the in the mountains. So winter, summer, uh, we were in the in the mountains of Colorado, um, mostly uh, you know around. Uh, Around Boulder, the, the Rocky Mountain National Park and the Never Summer Range and the Indian Peaks Range, but then um, you know also other other parts of the state. My dad really liked Crested Butte, so uh, winter and summer we would do at least uh, one week each in in Crested Butte. Um, my my mom really liked the San Juan, so we were down there a lot. So just a lot of exploring in, in Colorado as a as a kid. My goodness. So, so it, this was uh, ingrained in you at an early age. W- when for you yeah. did you start, I guess, lo- looking at this side of the equation, like the safety aspect and making sure other folks are not, are not only enjoying it yourself, but other folks are enjoying the, the outdoors? Well, um, un- unfortunately, I, I did come to this more from a personal uh, uh, aspect. Um, I... Uh, I really got into this because I wanted um, to help myself <laughs> do do more in the mountains and and, and be safe about it. And uh, along the way, just because I got so interested in it and um, tried to figure out a lot of the science and a lot of the subtleties of of how how we move through the mountains, the the snow covered mountains specifically, um, I started getting into uh, helping other people. So for me, that started right after high school. I moved to Telluride. Colorado, mostly to ski and to climb. And I had done some avalanche safety stuff with my family before, but uh, down there, I really got into it at a much different level and started learning about uh, a lot more of the details of it and the the science of it. Um, Decided to go back to school to, to try to understand more of the science of some of the stuff I was reading and trying to digest. 
uh, from there, I had some really good guidance and mentorship. And, and part of that was, you know, you need to see a lot of avalanches and the way to do that is ski patrolling. So I started ski patrolling and really got into that, um, you know, safety for other people aspect of it. Um, part of my um, duty at that point, I was working at a big sky ski area in Montana, which is pretty far away from any uh, weather forecasting group. And so uh, we did our own weather forecasting and I got tasked with doing that, but I didn't know anything about it. So I started learning about that and eventually decided to go study meteorology and went to the University of Utah and got a degree there. And then after that, I just sort of bounced back and forth between kind of field-based research, um, operational avalanche safety, and uh, more traditional academic research, and eventually landed here at the CAIC. So kind of a strange path. And you have been there, director, since 2005. I mean, that's a long time. It feels like a long time to have any sort of title these days, any sort of uh, uh, job. Yeah, I guess uh, if you got any ideas for me, um, I'll figure out what's going to be next. Um, yeah, you know, when I got this job, uh, which was in 2005, the, the previous director was uh, getting ready to retire. And he was kind of reaching out to a few different people to um, that he thought might be suited uh, for this. And um, I, I was working on a PhD. I was, you know, deep in a cold lab, a big refrigerator, looking at snow and and uh, working with snow physicists in Switzerland and, and really enjoying that and sort of thought that that was the direction I was going to go. But I started talking to friends of mine that worked at the center and, uh, you know, the, the other director and some of, some of the other applicants. And, you know, I looked at this and I was like, the last time this job opened up was 25 years ago, you know, so the previous director, Knox Williams, he had founded the center and was the director, the only director for its tenure. And uh, I was like, well, it's got to be a pretty good job if he stayed in it for that long. And um, if it's something I ever want to do, this is probably the only time it's going to come open in my career. So I threw my hat in, not really knowing what I wanted to do and uh, was fortunate enough to, to get an offer. The rest is history, as they say. I'm sure you have seen so much in your tenure there. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the overall trends that you've noticed change uh, either in the weather or avalanches themselves or in the culture around them? Uh, what, what have you noticed and how have you been able to adapt? Oh, really, really good question. And, you know, I, I think it's sort of all of the above. Like the only thing that is constant for us is that things are changing, you know, the culture around backcountry recreation in Colorado, it's always been here, you know, like, like we talked about a few minutes ago, it's something I grew up with, um, but it's really different. It's so different than when, you know, I was a kid growing up and, and exploring the mountains. It's, you know, different than it was, you know, five years ago. Um, and there's some great, great things about that. There's some, there's some complicated things about it as well, but you know, it's really pretty amazing to see how much of a focus it's become in, in Colorado. There's a lot of people that are moving here because they want access to that kind of recreation. A lot of people that are visiting here, not only to go to the ski resorts or, you know, ride a snowmobile with one of the guided groups, but also to, to get up high in the mountains and uh, backcountry ski or climb a 14er in the winter. Um, so just the diversity uh, of of sports, of what people are pursuing in the mountains is uh, is constantly changing. And I think it's really uh, interesting and uh, fascinating for us at the Avalanche Center to 
try to react. I'd like to say that we anticipate, but it's it's as much kind of reacting to um, what we see in terms of how people are using the terrain and what their goals are and, and what we can do, what we can provide for them to try to help them stay safe. You know, the weather is changing as well. I, I think that's, you know, just sort of a, a feature of the weather. Um, but of course, you know, uh, the, the climate is changing and understanding exactly how that's happening um, is certainly well beyond the, the resources and expertise of the Avalanche Center. But, um, you know, we really have to deal with the impact of those changes on a day-to-day -day and a, a season-by-season -season, uh, basis. And so, you know, it's hard to, to point to anything specific in terms of how it ties into climate change, but certainly some of the avalanche cycles that we've seen and some of the years that we've seen over the last 10 years or so um, would tie into climate change. And, um, you know, like we saw an avalanche cycle in March of 2019 that it's probably a 200-year event. I mean, it, it, uh, wow. it produced avalanches in some places that are unlike anything that anybody had seen or, or really we could find any written record of. I mean, we've started collaborating with uh, folks at the um, U.S. Geological Survey to look at the, uh, the signals in the in the trees that were destroyed, to look at the, the tree rings and try to identify, um, you know, just what type of avalanche cycle this was. So did you find you know, any found... interesting answers or anything uncovered? Uh, I remember that being an yeah. unprecedented year for, for avalanches. Yeah, it was really an unprecedented, you know, kind of two-week period. So, um, but no, we're still trying to tease a lot of that stuff out. We're spending a lot of, spending our summers running chainsaws now, uh, collecting uh, discs from the trees that were destroyed in this cycle. And we've got about a thousand uh, samples so far. And uh, we're just, um, well, the scientists at, at the USGS are just starting to to dig in to do some of the analysis. Um, so, you know, we know that some of these, some of these paths had a return rate of around 70 years or so. We've seen a few of them that were more in the, uh, you know, 100, 120 years. And then we've seen a few that were over 250 years. Um, but really trying to understand like how that all fits together. We, we haven't gotten that far just yet. <laughs> Okay, no and I'm just just a constant. It's it's like CSI, but for uh, for weather patterns, and just constantly putting the pieces together, trying to figure out what's what happened, how to solve it, how to prevent it in the future, or at least prepare for it. You know why why is this important? Why is forecasting important? Well, I, you know, I think one of the nice things about the Avalanche Center is it really is about uh, human lives or or human um, interactions with this natural hazard. Uh, you know, avalanches are um, a pretty important natural hazard in Colorado. They kill more people than any other natural hazard in the state. Mm. On average, uh, six people a year. And this is a this is a way above average year for that. Uh, unfortunately, we've had 11 people die in Colorado so far this winter. Um, and you know, the, the center is really tasked with uh, helping people understand avalanches, helping people with avalanche safety, um, both from you know, people that are going out, you know, skiing or snowshoeing or riding their snowmobile, but then also some of the local governments when they're, you know, uh, building structures or planning their communities. We work very closely with the Colorado Department of Transportation uh, to help them with a, a highway avalanche safety program because Colorado, the state and federal highways that run through the state, there's 522 avalanche paths that threaten that transportation system and about 
to right around 250 that we do active mitigation in. So, you know, it's really something that affects um, a lot of lives in the state because people live in the mountains like me here in Leadville. You know, it's not just that people are traveling to the mountains for recreation. Uh, people live in the mountains, they recreate there, but they also, you know, move between towns, they move goods and services. And the recreation economy in Colorado has become an extremely important part uh, of the state. And so, you know, we're a very small group and we, we try to contribute just a little bit to everybody being able to do all the different things that they want in the Colorado mountains. A ton of great reasons why understanding this is, is so important and, and helps, helps us all. How has the forecasting itself changed in the last 15 years that you've been director, 16 years? Um, ha- have you seen just leaps and bounds there or is it kind of some tried and true methods? Well, I, I think it's a little bit of both, and it's a little hard uh, when you're in the trenches to see the leaps and bounds mm-hmm. uh, so much. You know, it's a, it's a little more of, you know, kind of eking out a little real estate day by day. But, you know, like a lot of uh, kind of similar applied science groups, I think, you know, the the use of technology, you know, it's just, just think about how much it's changed in that you know, 15, 16 year period. And, you know, we've really followed that um, soothe as well. You know, like when I started here, a lot of the documentation was on pads of paper uh, or on forms on clipboards. We had clipboards hanging all over the office and, and uh, you know, you had to flip through them to kind of look for information and the forecasters, um, they kept a tremendous amount of stuff in their heads. Uh, You know, there were people here when I started working here that had been here, you know, 15 to 20 plus years at that time. And just the amount of knowledge that they had in their heads was incredible. But of course, you know, it's hard to pass that on to other people. It's, it's hard, you know, whether that's generational or between the operation, you know, we operated uh, really as a bunch of different avalanche centers kind of spread out through the state. And so, you know, a lot of what we've done is tried to use modern databasing and data visualization and, you know, we're running our own computer models um, and, you know, just trying to piece together all of the snow, weather and avalanche uh, information that we can collect and sort through it so we can deliver it to, you know, backcountry recreationalists or people on the highway or, you know, emergency managers of uh, some of the local counties. Is there any sort of time of year or uh, a, a time when you when you decide you know you can take a breather for the season, or is avalanches you know a threat all year round for you? Like, what is there a time of year that you're like, okay, we made it? Uh, well, you, you know, in the state historically, we've seen avalanche accidents in every month of the year. Um, wow! But in general, you know, November through April, or on some years May. Um, that's really the core part of the season. Uh, there's a, a pass right near my house here called Independence Pass, it's over 12,000 feet. And that's a road, it's a paved um, highway, highway, Colorado Highway 82. Uh, but that closes in the wintertime. And so, um, you know, we do a bunch of work with, uh, with CDOT to open it up in the spring. And that typically happens kind of in the middle, middle of May. We try to open it just before Memorial Day. And that, uh, in a lot of ways, sort of marks the end of uh, of the main season for for us. But we are still monitoring the conditions, you know, um, around uh, around the year. You know, it's one of the the nice things about uh, my job and some of the other jobs here at the center is that 
you know, we do get to focus on avalanches year round. And in the summer, that sort of switches from uh, collecting data and really understanding what's happening right now to more sort of planning ahead for like what the program is going to do. What are we going to change over the next year? What are we, you know, are there new products that we can uh, give to people? Are there new education uh, programs that we want to try to uh, improve on or, or launch? You know, this last uh, year in uh, kind of in preparation for, um, you know, what we had seen with COVID and the shutdown in uh, last spring and, and we're heading, you know, into the fall. And so we worked with the, the friends of the CAIC, which is our nonprofit partner, uh, to launch this trailhead sign campaign. And so we designed uh, some signs that we could put out and, uh, you know, we printed them and gave them away to to local governments and the federal government and clubs and really anybody that we could. And, uh, you know, so now you see those signs at well over a hundred trailheads around the state. Um, and so that, you know, that's just something that last summer we saw this need and we just tried to figure out how we were going to do it. And so that happens in that, you know, kind of quote unquote off season. We, uh, you know, I ran into some people in the field yesterday. I was out with one of the forecasters uh, snowmobiling uh, in the Swatch range and we ran into some people and they were, we were talking to them about what we were doing and, you know, sort of the questions we were trying to answer. And, you know, of course they're like, well, what do you do in the summertime? And, uh, you know, my, my standard answer was it's a little flippant, but also true is, uh, you know, we get ready for the winter. You know, we've basically got about four months of downtime in between the, the main part of the season where, uh, we can do development and, and, uh, any progress we make in the year really happens in that uh, that four month period. Jeez, man! And so it, it really is never ending concern. And you mentioned this year being higher than usual, and I, and I, I imagine that's because the ski resorts are closed for the most part, or, or at least much more limited. And uh, it's just forcing people into the backcountry. And, and is that true? Have a lot more people entered the backcountry because of that? Well, it, it, it is true, and uh, and it's also probably a little bit more complicated. We talked a little bit about just that interface between you know people and this natural hazard, and uh, you know it's it's a complicated uh, interface to examine and and, and kind of keep track of. I you know I say that uh, in order to get people caught in avalanches, you you kind of need two things: uh, avalanches and people, and they're both really complicated. And so understanding like how they fit together is is tricky. You know, here we uh, in Colorado, like the ski areas are open and there's lots of people that are enjoying, uh, you know, recreation there, but it's certainly different than it, than it was in the past. Uh, there are some limitations, you know, there's reserva reservation systems at some ski areas. It's, it's pretty different from, uh, you know, there's 27 major ski areas in the state. So, you know, how they all operate is, is, is pretty different you know, you're going from, kind of like the mom and pop ski area near me, uh, Ski Cooper on Tennessee Pass, which is where the 10th Mountain Division trained for, for World War II, uh, to, you know, Breckenridge, which, you know, I don't know how many millions of skiers visit there each year, but, uh, but it's, a, it's a huge operation. Um, and so how all of them have addressed COVID and the new restrictions and the new you know, public health environment is pretty different. But backcountry recreation in the state, like it's been growing on its own. So, you know, pretty much every year we're seeing more people uh, in the backcountry and participating in these different sports. I think that was accelerated by um, COVID and the mm -hmm. impact it's had on our, our world, but it's also just sort of amplifying the 
the pre-existing uh, signal there. Um, as far as avalanches this year, I mean, we were sort of, uh, we got dealt kind of a tough blow really because, you know, we do have, you know, more people in the backcountry for, for all the reasons we just talked about. But then we also had a pretty tricky snowpack this year or have a pretty tricky snowpack. And, you know, unlike that March of uh, 2019 cycle that, that we talked about a few minutes ago with, you know, 200 year events happening, um, these events are, are not like those at all. They're, they're much smaller avalanches. They're not wiping out, you know, acres of timber like those ones were changing the landscape. But they're really much more dangerous for people because they're really easy for people to trigger and they're large enough to kill people. And so what we saw was people getting more involved in these avalanches because a lot of times they're going places that they're used to go and doing what they were used to, used to doing but not anticipating just how tricky these avalanches were. There, a lot of them you could trigger remotely, which means that uh, you can trigger them from a low angle slope or, or maybe um, you know, a subridge when you're, you're walking up next to a steep slope. Um, they're running uh, much wider and much further than, um, than you would expect for the amount of snow that we had. And, uh, you know, as a result, we had um, a bunch of different accidents and we had a couple accidents that killed multiple people. Uh, so really pretty scary stuff. How do you process that? You know, accepting that being the director of CAIC and just, just trying to keep people prepared, is, is that still obviously something very hard to get through? But, but how, how involved are y'all in that either recovery process or, or in trying to go and understand those, those accidents where it is fatal? Well, we're involved in it in, in a lot of different ways, and it, it depends a little bit on the, the events and, you know, kind of how that all shakes out. But, um, you know, we do investigations of every fatal accident and some non-fatal, and, and really our goal there is to document the, that human avalanche interaction, both in the short term to, to educate people, to show them what's happening, you know, right now, um, and and hopefully help them avoid it, but then also to you know, look at avalanche accidents, um, you know, together as a, as a large uh, data set and really think about the trends in terms of how people are, uh, who's getting involved in avalanches, how that's happening. And, and if there's, you know, characteristics in the people or the avalanches that, you know, that we can learn from. Um, so we try to visit these sites within um, 24 hours. Um, but a lot of times, because we do support local governments, um, you know, the sheriff's responsible for search and rescue in Colorado, and most of the counties have some sort of nonprofit group that's a, a volunteer group that's doing search and rescue. And so we try to support those folks as much as possible. And so a lot of times we are out with them on the initial response or the recovery, depending on how that, that works. And, and this year, you know, that's been a lot of work. We've spent a lot of time, um, you know, helping these groups and being involved in these rescue or recovery efforts. And then, um, you know, trying still to write detailed reports and explain to people, you know, what's what's going on. And a lot of that is, you know, we're, the biggest short-term goal is really to prevent the next accident. You know, we try to do that quickly so that people can understand that and hopefully apply that those lessons right away. What would you say the biggest misconception about avalanche forecasting is that you hear from folks on the outside? <laughs> Might be a many. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we put out these forecasts, uh, um, you know, about about sometime 
between like six and seven in the morning. And people seem to think that we're, we've already been out in the mountains uh, looking around and then we're back in the office and writing those forecasts by, by seven. And sometimes that actually does happen. Um, it's not the same people writing the forecasts that, is, that are out. But, uh, you know, a lot of what we're doing is getting up super early to go through all the data and, and uh, you know, look at all the, the, the models and try to understand what's happening and then write that forecast. And as part of that, we're, we're posing whatever questions we have about, you know, where the holes are and what we're doing and, you know, where we need more information or what topics we need to understand better and then going out and, and, and getting that. So, you know, we are up uh, early or, you know, our... Uh, the first shift starts at, at 4 a.m., but we're also not going out into the snow to dig lots of snow pits at 4 a.m. We, we wait till it's light and, uh, and then do that work. That's some serious dedication. So, so what, what excites you the most about the future of forecasting? Is there anything you see that's coming or any sort of technology or any sort of, I don't know, trends that, you're, you're, that excites you the most? Well, the, the group, I'm fortunate to work in a group of, you know, really uh, dedicated and talented people. And it's a pretty big group for the type of work that we do. So we really have our, our fingers in a, in a lot of different pies, so to speak, where we, uh, we interact with a lot of different research groups. Uh, we have the resources and in some cases expertise to, to contribute to um, a lot of different types of work out there. So there's a, a lot of exciting stuff. Um, you know, I think we're we're looking a lot at how we actually issue these forecasts and how people ingest that information and use it and trying to figure out how we can uh, do that better and kind of reach people more where they are rather than, you know, where we are. So I think avalanche forecasting traditionally has really relied on people knowing a lot about avalanches and, and what the forecasters do. And, and uh, over the years, we've tried to shift that a little more so that we have our own internal processes, but then we can deliver that information to people, um, you know, in the way that they want it, uh, you know, whether that's through social media or, um, you know, on geographic regions that make more sense to them or, you know, information that we can feed to education programs so people can understand that better. And I think we still have a long ways to go with that. And so, you know, we're continuing to work on some of those topics and, and I think, uh, you know, have some interesting ideas that will hopefully come out, you know, over the, the next few years. There's also, you know, a lot of really interesting technology. You know, there's an article in a, a publication in Colorado, I think just today about, uh, you know, some of the work that we're doing supporting uh, research groups that are trying to look at avalanche activity with satellite imagery. Um, and so like just the ability to, see avalanches without having to go into the field and, and individually count them. Like there's, there's no uh, substitute for going in and looking at the snow in the mountains, but to be able to, to see, say like avalanche activity over a large area like Colorado and get a better count of, uh, of what the, of the number of avalanches and the characteristics of the terrain that they're releasing in, um, you know, I think that that would help us tremendously. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of different uh, topics out there, and you know, like a lot of fields, I think we have a lot of really talented young people that are that understand the science and are interested in in the application that we're working on, and I'm very excited to uh, to see what they come up with. Too cool. Well, I'm going to give you two situations here, and I, w- I want to know best way to go about it. Group of friends going to the backcountry to ski this weekend. 
they might not be the most experienced or the most, you know, prepared. What advice would you give that group that might be listening right now who have plans? And then also, what advice would you give someone that, that has a little more time? Maybe they're interested in this in general and want to get more into the backcountry. Sure. Well, those are those are two groups that we deal with quite a bit. So for the folks that have plans and are heading into the mountains, you know, the very most important thing that they should do is uh, check the avalanche forecast. Uh, they really want to make sure that the avalanche conditions during the time that they're going to be out uh, match their plan. So, you know, if they're in Colorado, you know, going to colorado.gov slash avalanche and, and looking at the forecast, um, if you're in some other part of the country, go to uh, avalanche.org um, and you can get connected with a local forecast center throughout the country. And just just make sure that, uh, you know, what you're going to do uh, matches what the avalanche conditions are, because that's really the most important is, you know, I like to tell people that there there isn't any recreational goal out there that you need to cross off the list like you can any peak that you want to climb any any place that you want to ski any any uh, route you're going to traverse or, or or go with your snowmobile like those are all possible but you really need to find the right day and so so matching the current conditions to your plan um, is the most important piece you know for the person that uh, you know has a little bit more time and, and wants to understand this stuff better i mean it's pretty incredible I, the the range of uh, of material that's at your fingertips with the internet and I think with COVID and uh, all the challenges to to meeting in person. Of course, that's been really hard for for a lot of us, me <laughs> me included. Um, but one of the nice things about it is that there's so much of uh, so much more material has been moved online. So. You know, like we do a, uh, a fall seminar every year, mostly geared towards avalanche professionals, but certainly has good stuff for recreationalists as well. That's uh, the Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop. And, you know, typically we we get about six or 700 people to come to Breckenridge and, and hang out for a day and listen to to talks. You know, this year, of course, we had to do that online and, and we had, you know, closer to 1,500 people register. And now those recordings are, are on uh, the Friends of CAAC's uh, YouTube uh, site. And, uh, you know, you can watch that material and, and really listen to experts from around the world. The friends also do uh, a recreational version of that, um, of that same sort of seminar. And so, um, you know, there, that just happened a couple of weeks ago. And so again, that material is available. Um, and then there's a bunch of other avalanche centers that have done the same thing. And, and so instead of having to travel around the country to listen to you know, people talk about these topics, you can go onto these different YouTube channels and just absorb an incredible amount of information. So, you know, it really depends on uh, how detailed uh, you want to get in terms of snow science or avalanche applications, you know, what your particular interest in is it, is it skiing? Is it snowmobiling? You know, is it trying to, to protect a highway or, or a work site, but between um the, all the different resources that are out there, you can take classes from the American Avalanche Institute or, or ARI. Um, there's the International Snow Science Workshop that has an archive of, uh, you know, 30 years of, uh, of science papers you can read. Like, there's an amazing amount of stuff out there. And so it's really just a matter of uh, picking what you're interested in and digging into it. Fantastic. I love that you mentioned YouTube. I feel like I, got, I have a degree in a couple areas where all it's all been YouTube, man. There's some great people teaching great stuff 
on the internet yeah. and uh, you can yeah. learn just about anything, including this. That was a great, I didn't even think about that, but it just, just YouTube it. I fixed my dishwasher this weekend with YouTube. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. That's, it's such a great resource, but, uh, too cool. Is there anything else you'd like to share with, uh, with listeners before we jump off? Well, we've covered so much. Um, I don't know if there's really much else, I guess. I just like to thank you for the invitation to come talk to your listeners and, uh, you know, thank athletic, uh, brewing for the support of, uh, of Avalanche safety in Colorado and, uh, really encourage people to, you know, get out there and enjoy backcountry recreation, especially in the wintertime. Uh, right now I'm looking out the window at snow covered peaks under a beautiful cloudless blue sky. And, uh, you know, it's just an amazing experience. There's so much that people can do out there. And I hope that, uh, People that are listening to this are excited to continue to do that or motivated to uh, to start. I've only got 26 seconds, so let me make this quick. If you'd like to find out more about Colorado Avalanche Information Center, just Google it. It's easier than typing out their URL. If you'd like to find out more about our beer, go to athleticbrewing.com. You can order on our website or you can use our store finder. I encourage you to do both. Also, if you know of any trail-based organizations that need funding for a project coming up, we're giving away a half a million dollars in June. Have them apply at our website. Links for all that stuff in the show notes. 